We turn now to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, they, uh, as he sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, And when he stepped out into the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountains, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. And they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by which means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. And the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. So it was, when Jesus returned, that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come into his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. A woman having a flow of blood for twelve years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, 
She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. And all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. God add his blessing to that reading of his inerrant and inspired word. Well, the ordinary way that I preach through scripture is to preach it little section by little section. Little passage, little pericope as it's sometimes called by pericope. And ordinarily then, we would take a a whole month to go through the remainder of Luke chapter 8. The only problem with this is that as best as I can tell, the events that occupy those many verses all happen on a single day. And it is presented to us in that way, rapid fire, one after another, and I think there's some purpose behind that. I think there's a reason why God in his wisdom gave us, did those things on that day and gave us to them all, 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 gave us these things all together. And so I propose to preach them together this morning. And I think the purpose that the Lord had in showing them these things one after another was to put on display his unlimited power and authority over all things without any exception. And I think it is one of those things that is better, well, of course it's explained, but for the disciples it was experienced. They saw these things and they learned something from them. That's my hope and prayer this morning, that as we examine these same things, that we would have the same sort of experience that the disciples did on their day, that we would hear these things, yes, in our mind, but in our hearts we would recognize that Jesus really does have all power and authority. It's so important. It's such a vital lesson for us to learn because you ask, you know, why don't people believe on Christ? And why do some of us who do believe, why are we in such fear and anxiety? Because obviously there's something in us, there is some part of us that is not fully understood. It is not, it, it, the idea that Christ really has authority over all things has not really permeated all of us. Some part of us still needs to be convinced that Jesus is able to do what we need him to do when we need him to do it. And as this passage makes clear, there is no part of reality about which that Jesus is not in full and complete control. We need to hear that. We need to believe that. And without further introduction or any preliminaries, We go to this day, the day that Christ showed his unlimited power. 
And of course, over these four things, over nature, over demons, over disease, and over death. So first is power over nature. You know the situation. Starting in verse 22, it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. Just notice that Jesus fell asleep. It's a reminder, of course, that he was fully human as well as fully divine. There is no doubt about it. He shared our infirmities. When we think about Jesus, when we pray to him, we have to keep in mind that he's a high priest acquainted with all of our infirmities, and he needed his sleep like we do. But, of course, I also think it was part of the providential plan for the disciples to see him there in the midst of the storm asleep. And you see how it said a windstorm came down on the lake, and that's a very vivid and and accurate picture for us because, as some of you know, that due to geography and to physics, it just so happens that lakes like that, and particularly the Sea of Galilee with the, the land rising on, on either side is sort of like a, a venturi effect, the wind coming through there. And the, the physics of a lake actually mean that you can, a windstorm will create higher waves than what you'd ever find on the open ocean. And so it was capable then of the most violent sort of, of storm and wind and wave could rise very high. But of course, the disciples there were not tourists, were they? They had among their number, a large number, actually, if you think about the proportion of them, who were professional fishermen who, in fact, lived on this lake, had seen it all before. And just, you know, as a very trivial example, uh, being from Florida, when we, there's, um, you know, we have these tremendous storms in, in summer, and I don't think a single thing about it. I don't even, it doesn't I, it cross my mind to go driving on the highway in this blinding rain because that's what we all did. We were used to it. We knew, we knew how to do it. And I think tourists would, would probably be afraid. But if, if we're together in Tampa and I start getting afraid because of the violence of the storm, then there's, there's a problem. Okay? And that's the situation with these natives of Galilee who were very much in terror for their lives. And their perception, what's their, their perception of this situation that they're in? That we're perishing. We are about to die. And, you know, the funny thing is to me, the only way that that was going to happen, yes, the boat was filling with water, but the only way, and so it was a very threatening appearance, I understand, but the only way for them to actually die is it for that boat to go down, right? And who's asleep in it? Jesus, Right? So they, they are somehow thinking that this boat could go down with the Lord of the universe asleep in it. Well, Jesus, of course, what his response is rather different because, of course, all he has to do is use the unlimited power and authority over all things that are, is ever at his disposal. He arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was a calm. The elements respond to the voice of their maker immediately. And as is rightly pointed out in Christianity Explored, to a great calm. It is not, you see, the thing about it is waves don't just immediately die down. Even if the wind, the source of their being stirred up, stops, 
the waves would continue on for some time in their violence because that's just the way it works, naturally speaking. But of course, this was no natural occurrence. This was a supernatural imposition of, of God's infinite power in the hands of Jesus Christ and the same word of which the whole universe was created out of nothing, summoning forth out of non-existence the things that exist, making them as they are, that same word acted in the same way supernaturally to bring about the great calm. That's by the word of his power. And then Jesus gives them the rebuke in verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Because, of course, they had some kind of faith or they would not be his disciples. The problem was, where is it? It's like they'd lost it. They had it somewhere. Jesus knows that they had this faith somewhere. They wouldn't, he wouldn't, they wouldn't be following him. And Jesus asked, where is it? Our faith was limited. It was compartmentalized. It applies to some things but not to others. And Jesus has to explain to them, Jesus has to demonstrate to them in the course of this day that actually that their faith in him need not be compartmentalized because there's no aspect of reality over which he has not unlimited power. Well, their reflection upon these things uh, says, and they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Yeah, who? Who could this be? At a loss, I guess. You know, because with all these people running around who have this unlimited authority to speak to the elements and they immediately obey him. I mean, who could it be? Hard to keep track, right? Psalm 89, 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107.28, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, and he guides them to their desired haven. Those kind of things are psalms which they well knew might have given them some kind of a hint who it was. But the day is not yet over, is it? They have a few other things to see. Secondly, then, Jesus demonstrates his power over demons. Because, you know, the elements are one thing, but they're, they're, they are not, uh, uh, they don't have volition. They, the elements are not uh, some malevolent, malevolent power like the demons are. The demons actually have personality. They are evil and powerful, wicked beings who mean to do us harm. So let's see how he does here. Here's the situation. Verse 26, they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he stepped out into the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. Verse 29. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Now, incidentally, as I mentioned uh, in the theology class, uh, we were, just happened to be in the, the lecture dealing with the angels and the demons and truly, these, I, I believe that demon possession happens today. It does not happen to believers. Uh, thankfully, we are, we, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is no room in the end for an evil spirit to be there. The Holy Spirit's already occupying us. However, for the unregenerate, yes, there is such a thing as demon possession even today. 
And I think, incidentally, these kind of incidents tell us some of the, the characteristics of demon possession, including self-harm. Not that it always is that way, but sometimes it is. Because the parallel passage gives us a couple more details. Why, is he, why was he being kept under, under guard? Same reason why someone is kept under guard today. Mark uh, 5, 3. This man had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always night and day he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. There was some desire to to keep him from harming himself, again, even as we do today. Now, Let's consider the demon's response then to Jesus and maybe compare and contrast that just a little bit with the disciples' response. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What do I have to do with thee, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, there's no lack of faith here, right? No lack of faith. You see, the demons know exactly who Jesus Christ is. There's no question in their mind who he is and what power and authority he has over them and over all things. No question there. You've got to be, make sure that you understand this is not some contest of wills. It's far, far from it. They are just begging him not to judge them eternally right then and there. Matthew 8 goes on to say, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is not some wondering, testing of their wills. Let's see what we can do with Jesus. Let's see if we can oppose him. Far from it. This whole legion of evil spirits, any one of which is enough to overpower. This whole legion are standing there trembling. Only request is that they be allowed to enter that herd of swine rather than be sent to hell right then and there. Both of which outcomes they fully believe that Jesus had the authority to enact. He could send them off to the swine or he could send them straight to hell to torment them right from that moment. There was no question. Jesus could have done either of those things. I think the demon's theology at this point is a little bit better than the disciples. Now the townspeople's response, incidentally, is also interesting. Verse 33, Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. And those who fed them saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by which means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Why? why? Why this response? Why did they say, please leave? Please leave. You know, some very good preachers have supposed that they were merely acting out of a selfish desire to safeguard their pigs from any further loss. You know, here this whole, swine, this whole herd of swine had been lost in this incident, and they're just thinking, look, if we're going to keep, we're pig farmers, this is our job, we've got to get him out of here before any more herds are lost. Well, I don't deny that such concerns were probably there, but that doesn't really explain their being seized with great fear. And mainly, if you follow the narrative, it is not the loss of the pigs that is on their mind. 
In verse 53, they found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's the thing. That's the thing that is bringing the fear. This crazy demoniac of which none of them could tame, who could break the chains, and which had been these, it, it had been this case for years, clothed and in his right mind. That's why they were seized with great fear. They were afraid. And just to put it beyond doubt, they also who had seen it told them by which means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. And they were seized with great fear. That's the thing. The whole multitude of the surrounding region of the gatherings asked him to depart from them. You know, in this, they were essentially responding just like someone else. In fact, somebody who was there in the company with Jesus, he would have recognized this response. You know who it was? It was Peter. Because you know what happened when Peter came face to face with a holy God? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is what they're doing. It has come to them. It is the reality of who Jesus is in his enormous power and authority over these demons. It comes to them. This is holy God in the form of a man. He is taken on human flesh. He is dwelling among us and he is able to do these things. And they say, depart. As they know, they are too sinful Men And they cannot stand to have this holy God in their presence. One of the two of them must leave. They were seized with great fear. And they should be. The fear of God is upon them. And they, they do as Peter had said, depart from me. The day is not yet done, by the way. We still have some other things to consider. I just mentioned before we go on. The man's response, now the man from whom the demons, he didn't think that. He didn't want to go away. He wanted to stay. His response was, let me be with you. But Jesus says, return to your own house and tell them what great things God has done for you. And he's went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Reminder, of course, one of the reasons why we remain in the places that we are, in the places that God has called us. Some he calls, yes, to go somewhere else. But for so many of us, we're called to remain where we are in order that we might bear testimony to the great things that he's done. Well, that's his power over the elements, his his power over demons, and thirdly, we see his power over disease. Now, the situation is this, beginning in verse 42, that as he went, he returns, of course, to the other side. The multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, that's the situation. She's beyond any human help. If there was anything that medical science could do for her, uh, it, it, it couldn't. She tried it all, and it didn't work. And indeed, now she had exhausted her, her finances doing it. I guess before there was always some other thing that she might try. There's always some possibility that another physician trying something else might just solve the problem, but now it's all over. There's nothing left. She's beyond human help. Well, the woman's response, once again, we consider these various different responses of the disciples and of the demons and of the men and, and of this woman. She came from behind and touched the border of his garment. 
And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And we, we don't have to guess. We could surmise even from that the faith that this woman had in Jesus to do this thing that she needed desperately to be done. But it said to us explicitly in the parallel passage in, in Mark 5. For she said, this is of course to herself, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. It's a response of faith. She understands that none of these these human doctors could actually in the end solve her problem. But the Lord of the universe with his unlimited power and authority, he can do it. And all I have to do is is touch his garment. Jesus says, who touched me? And all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, but you say, and you say, who touched me? Again, the, un- the, the wonderful, you know, you've really got to hand it to Peter, don't you? Um, well, it's true. The, the multitudes were thronging him. That's the way it's described. They're all around him. They're all up against him. Jesus has a reason for asking the question, who touched me? Jesus said, someone touch me, for I perceive power going out from me. Again, interesting. I perceive power, because that's what this whole chapter is about. That's what this this day is about, the demonstration of power, the imposition of it. When he stands up and he speaks, when he commands the demon, and, and now someone merely touching the hem of his garment, power goes out from him, because that's just how much power is invested in him. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him. You know, she had reason to be fearful. There's a reason why she didn't want to own up to this, right? Because she was unclean. And in the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, someone who has a flow of blood should not be touching anyone, shouldn't be touching a family member, let alone this rabbi. And the fact that she is done that, of course, is something that she was not immediately wanting to own up to. But, you know, Jesus, I don't think, was afraid of becoming unclean. As I've said before, uh, Victoria Falls, Niagara Falls, they're not afraid of becoming defiled by some dirty dish being put in. I mean, a little, again, this little glass of water, you put somebody's dirty hand in that, that's a problem. But you put a dirty hand in Victoria Falls and it's not a problem because he's the source of all purity, a holiness. He is the holy God. Holy, holy, holy are what the cherubim who are burning. They are burning because they are in the presence of this holy God. And, and he's not in fear of being made unclean by this woman. It's a reminder, of course, that Jesus is not, at no point is he afraid of any of these things. He's not afraid of the storm. He's their master. He's in charge of the, the elements. He's not a, afraid of the demons. He created them. He, does, he can send them to hell in an instant if he wants to. He's not afraid of being made unclean. That is not a problem for him. He has complete power over these things. And he says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith, meaning faith that has brought you here, faith that has brought you to me, not just faith in general. We don't speak of it as just faith some people you know, speak of this kind of secular faith that has no object in which just positive feelings, optimism is going to do it. That's not it. He's saying, the faith that has brought you here to me, and you really believe that I could do it, well, you're right. It's true. I could. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
He has unlimited power over disease. He can heal it immediately, something that no human physician could do. But the day is not quite over because there's one more thing to talk about. And lastly, that's his power over death itself. We know the situation in verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, surely this is uh, the most moving of these accounts thus far. We have this man in such a dreadful situation. And whatever reticence, I suppose, that this respectable Jewish leader, and we know that these Jewish leaders had reticence to come to Jesus, we're reminded of this situation in the Gospel of John of Nicodemus, a, a Pharisee, a ruler among the Jews, coming to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen openly coming to Jesus. But whatever reticence that this respectable leader might have had regarding Jesus, it's just overcome by the greatest need that probably any of us can experience. Not even our own death, but the imminent death of a child. What more way could any human being be racked with desire and with hopelessness and with, indeed, in the compassion willing to do absolutely anything to save that child. You know, that makes me think, by the way, of God, handing over his only son to die for people like us. When you think about the situation of that man on that day, desperate that someone would save the life of his child before she died, and then the father willingly handing over the son to be put to death on our, for our sakes, it's truly an amazing thought. But the situation, of course, gets a little worse because in verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Now that's final. You know, all the rest of these things thus far, they're not quite final. You have a storm and the boat is filling with water, but it hasn't sunk yet. You have the demon and the demons have been afflicting this man for years, but he's not dead yet. You have this woman with a flow of, ish, of blood for years, this disease that no one can cure, but she isn't yet dead. And now we have this situation that's final. You have that, that moment, the surgeon walks out and said, we did all that we could. And she's gone. She is entirely and categorically beyond all human help. Of course, we don't have all the details of the father's response, but it could only have been one of incredible grief and of despair. Again, his only child, now dead. What is Jesus' perspective? How does he respond? He, he has one who has truly unlimited power. We don't have to compartmentalize our faith and to say he can do this and not that, that and not this. He, he doesn't think that way. He can do anything he wants, and he can raise the dead. He has that unlimited power and authority over all things, and he knows it. He knows it. Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. He's not panicking because he knows the power that he has. His theology is perfect, isn't it? 
And it's displayed in these things. He knows. And when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. Now, she was dead. That's the thing. It's reiterated just so that we know. She is not play acting. It's not a coma. She actually is dead. What does Jesus mean when he says that she's sleeping? That's the way that believers are described when they pass away. Did you know that? The, the, the New Testament goes out of its way to avoid using death for Christians. Every time that Paul or any of the other writers can possibly get away with it without confusing people, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they say, fall asleep. Because that's what it is. It doesn't properly, rightly describe our, our situation. Because those who have gone before in the faith are more alive now in heaven than they ever were on earth. It is not right to describe their situation as dead. But physically, there's no doubt about it. She was dead. Absolutely so. They ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, calling, saying, Little girl, arise. Then what does it say? Her spirit returned. You see how that was? This wasn't just fixing a, a body. That's something that is in the hands of men. We can fix bodies pretty well. But we can't return spirits that have departed. That separation between body and spirit that marks the moment of death is in the hands of God alone. But this is God. And he has the power to reverse that. He can bring people back from the dead. And ladies and gentlemen... That's the only thing that matters. We are so worried about these other things. We're worried about nature and we're worried about disease and we're worried about money and we're worried about relationships and so forth. But the one thing that is irreversible, the one thing that is final, the one thing that really truly matters is that separation of death. Because there's no coming back from that. And the question is, who has the power to reverse that? Who has the power to resurrect the dead because he's the one that deserves our allegiance. He's the one who deserves our faith. And that's what he did. Spirit of returned and she arose immediately and she commanded, he commanded that she be given something to eat. Your parents were astonished, right? You you would be astonished. I don't think Jesus was. Because his theology was perfect. And he knew the power that he had over life and death. That day might have been over. Of course, this gospel is not. The gospel of Luke carries on. And we greater things will be seen yet to come. And you know what else? History still goes on. Greater things are yet to be seen in history. When Jesus comes back, and he judges the living and the dead, and he brings to the conclusion all of history. Greater things are yet to be seen. Our applications are pretty simple. The first one is that we ought to believe. It's so simple. It's believing. It's what John said throughout his gospel. It's what's implied throughout Luke's gospel. These things are written in order that you might believe. 
And sometimes we are astonished at the disciples. And Jesus says, and he, if he's not astonished that he raised a girl from the dead. He's a, little, he's a little surprised, though, that his own disciples who knew who he was, good and well, that they were so afraid in the storm. Where's your faith? And for you who are yet outside, who have not put your faith in Christ, what are you waiting for? Can you conceive of anyone more worthy of putting your faith in? Can you imagine anyone who has greater power and authority? You know, the fact is that we are born with an innate requirement, with a need for us to put our faith into someone or something. That's unfortunately how it is that con men and dictators and so forth, they're able to do their evil work because we know that all people have this need to put faith into something. And nine times out of ten, it's misplaced faith. These men who are evil, as I mentioned, or they're just those who are not able to do the things that they want to do. Sometimes people just have good intentions, but they're not able to do the kind of things that Jesus did. They, they want to build something, but a storm comes and destroys it because they don't have power over nature. They don't have power over Satan and all of his machinations. They don't have power over disease, and they certainly don't have power over life and death. And that is a great problem. But Jesus does. And Jesus said to him, where is your faith? He said that to those who, who knew enough, more than enough, but we know more than them because we know the rest of that day, don't we? We know the rest of that day and the rest of the gospel. We know the rest of human history. We know our own situation. We know a lot more than they do. And you ought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to all those who put their faith in him. All we, the perfect picture of faith, I don't know where it, and you, you, there's so many pictures of faith, but surely one of the most perfect pictures of faith we have is just that woman coming to Jesus. Does it, what does she know about him? How much theology does she have? She has one thing that's right, doesn't she? She acts on the one thing that she knows. Jesus has that power and authority. He can fix it. And she reaches out her hand. And she does it quite literally to the hem of the garment. Doesn't even go to face to face. He's, his back is turned, just touching the hem of the garment. I think that's a pretty decent picture of faith. We reach hold of the one who is there before. You may not know everything about him. And you know what? We'll never know everything about Christ in this life. You know more than enough. Put out your hand in faith. And believe in him and be saved. And you will be saved. Just like that woman immediately. Your faith will make you well. Second, I think we ought to worship this one. That I, I sometimes use Peter's situation with the miraculous catch of fish when he says, Depart from me, O Lord. That's an example of what true worship looks like. In some sense, we'd have to say that was like what the Gadarenes, when they come and they, they are amazed, they are aghast, they can't believe the power that he has. That's kind of a picture of worship. But as God's people, we can do even better than that. It doesn't need to be that kind of unhelpful fear that says, get away from me. But the kind of right situation which we worship. And yes, we ought to fear God. That is, of course, sometimes our problem, we don't fear him. It's something that uh, Benjamin Wontrop spoke of at YP last night. We put our fear in those that we should not fear. We're fearing man. We're fearing events and so forth. And we shouldn't be fearing them. We should fear God. 
And the fear of, of God drives out every other fear. You know, I, I mentioned some of those verses in the Psalms that, that should have told them who it was that had power over all the elements in the sea and could calm the sea. Um, but the preceding verse in Psalm 89, 7 says this, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. And then it goes on to describe precisely the scene that happened in Luke 8 of Jesus calming the storm. He is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. It is right for God's people to have him in that kind of great respect and awe that we call the fear of God. We should fear to sin against him. And we should not ever imagine that someone else, any demon in hell, any, any, any man on earth, any kind of situation at all has power over us that op- operates independently from Christ. You know, Christ brought that storm. You understand that, right? He had the power to bring the storm and he had the power to make it go away. He had the power to create those who would become demons and the power to send them into hell. He had the power to bring the disease upon that woman and the power to make it go instantly. He had the power in his sovereignty. He upholds all things by the power of his word to bring that illness to that little girl who resulted, that resulted in her death, but also the power to bring her back to life. We ought to fear God and nothing else. Fear God and fear nothing else. Not disease, not old age, indeed not even death itself. We have nothing to fear. Jesus has all power and authority, doesn't he? And finally, I would say that we ought to avail ourselves of the great power and authority that Jesus has in prayer. I think we all know the Lord's Prayer. Just reminded of one particular element in it in, the, in Matthew 6. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the rationale. That is the basis upon which we ask these things. That is the basis upon which we can come and and in faith ask. We know that apart from faith, our prayers are worthless. If we don't believe that God is and is a rewarder of those who who diligently seek him, then there's no, no point in our prayer. What he's saying is that the rationale that we come to is that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And if we know this, if we know what Luke chapter 8 says, if we know about this unlimited power and authority that he put on display on that day, we ought to avail ourselves of it. That ought to feed, that ought to be the source of power then as we pray the Lord's Prayer and other prayers that are modeled after the model prayer. He has his power to do the thing that we're asking. There are no exceptions. There is nothing outside of it. As long, now yes, of course, it must be in accordance with his will. If we're asking for things sinfully, selfishly, and so forth, of course, that's not going to happen. But Jesus has the power to do whatever it is that is troubling us. Whatever great need it is that we have, or on behalf of others, he has the power to do it. We have to believe that. And let's avail ourselves of the power which he invites us to do when he says, pray for these things that you might have. Let's pray. Lord, what can we do in response to these things? We are those who have far less 
excuse than the disciples themselves for having a lack of faith. And you rebuke them, Lord. Where is your faith? Lord, I, we wonder how many times such a thing could be said of us. Where is your faith? For those who know all the things in your word, that we've read this Bible, and we know its promises, we know how you've worked these things, we know how the story ends. And we know in our own lives just how faithful you have been. Not one of us could accuse you of unfaithfulness to your promises. We know that not one of your promises has failed. All of them have come to pass. And yet, Lord, we still operate with sometimes this practical atheism or practical compartmentalization of our faith that you can do some things but not others. Lord, help us to know. Help us to see that which you put on display on that day that Christ has authority over all things in this universe and there is no exception. And Lord, let us forsake our fear of man or forsake our fear of disease and even of the powers of darkness and death itself But rather, Lord, let our one fear be a fear of God, a right and healthy fear of God that casts out every other fear. Help us indeed to worship you and to pray in faith for the things that we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.